This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Live from the Fox News Radio Studios in New York City, fresh off the set of Fox and Friends, it's America's receptive voice. Brian Kilmeade. Thanks so much for listening, everyone. The Brian Kilmeade Show, steaming your way. Uh, Ennis Cantor will be with us. He's uh, the Boston Celtics forward. He's in the bubble in Orlando. What's it like? Are we going to get sports online? Are we going to see college football? We'll know if the major conferences are online late uh, July. Right now, uh, most are committing to conference games. Sadly, some of the smaller schools are done. Uh, in New York, they canceled uh, Cooney, which is the city schools, uh, colleges. And I think they're on the cusp of canceling maybe uh, college sports in the fall already, even though the curve is bent, it's destroyed for now, although most people believe that it is coming back. And hopefully we'll get to school, but it depends on what political persuasion you are uh, and what what persuasion your mayor is in, whether you go to school or not. And that's pretty sad. Uh, And Larry Hogan's going to be here next. Governor of Maryland's got a brand new book, talks about his remarkable career uh, in and out of politics. So let's get to the big three. Now with the stories you need to know, it's Brian's Big Three. Number three. We have other cities that are out of control. They're like war zones. And if the city isn't going to straighten it out of local politicians, or we're not going to put up with that. Uh, that is President Donald Trump. Disturbed what he sees in Portland. Disturbed about what he sees in Chicago. Disturbed about what he sees in New York. And he's not going to watch the chaos. We're at a breaking point. The president says he's prepared to take uninvited action. What will that be? Number two. One of the biggest predictors and one of the best ways to get out of poverty is early education. It's not college. It's elementary school. It's middle school where you learn about yourself, where you learn all of the basics. Uh, So true. Melissa Francis on with me last night as I filled in for Tucker. COVID-19 not going anywhere as many cities decide to keep their schools closed and hamstring businesses. Does anyone have proof that any of that would help suppress the virus? It didn't seem to the first time. To me, the only guarantee, it will crush business and academic achievement. Number one. Remember, Bill Stepien was at the White House and he was moved over to campaign just a couple of months ago. He will become the Trump campaign manager and Brad is going to be handling all the digital work that he was known for and famous for in 2016. And he'll remain a senior advisor on the campaign. Dana Perino providing instant analysis is the news about Brad Parscale being out uh, as the campaign chairperson. He's been had that job since 2018, uh, but he stays on the campaign. Uh, the president takes makes a change at the top. Uh, Bill Stepien comes in. However, it may have been a secret. He may have a secret weapon and that secret support we hear so much about. Plus, the president just picked up a major endorsement from a police union that used to be best buddies with Biden. Joining me now is Governor Larry Hogan, governor of Maryland and chairman of the National Governors Association and author of a brand new book called Still Standing, Surviving Cancer, Riots and a Global Pandemic and the Toxic Politics that Divide America. Governor, welcome. Good morning, Brian. It's good to be with you. Hey, Governor, was this almost therapy writing this, although although was it very hard because you're in the middle of this? 
Well, you know what? It really was therapy. Um, uh, I, I was right. I wrote a lot of the book, uh, really, and turned it in for uh, to the publisher on February 1st. So it was before the pandemic. And it was supposed to come out earlier. And I put it on hold because of the, you know, we were in a state of emergency. And the publisher w- couldn't hold it off any longer until the end of July. And, and they asked if we would add a few chapters about the coronavirus. So although we were working seven days a week, uh, you know, I found a few... Uh, few uh, hours at nights and weekends to add a few chapters about the most up-to-date information. But really, it was more about uh, all the other stories that you mentioned in that long title. Uh, first off, uh, the most serious thing. Well, what is it like finding out you have cancer and it's late-stage cancer? Well, it was uh, it was really uh, a tough news to get. It was, uh, you know, you, as governor, I came in with this great plan. We were going to, you know, cut taxes and, 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 and get our economy back on track and put people to work. And I had a plan for all of that. And then 90 days later, we had uh, you know, the, the worst violence in 47 years, riots break out in Baltimore City we had to deal with. And then 60 days later, I got this notice that I had very advanced and aggressive life-threatening cancer, which hit me from out of the blue. I don't, I'd only been governor for five months. And uh, so I battled that for about 18 months while dealing with all the other issues and and, and, and continuing to uh, get a lot done here in one of the bluest states in America as a Republican governor. Those are uh, all the stories we talk about in the book. Yeah, so it, it's all in there, and it humanizes you even further. So if we watch a lot of these Democratic mayors in Portland, in Seattle, in Chicago, in New York, and their policies are remarkably consistently ineffective, and their reaction to the crisis has fallen short to be kind. And many people say, well, Republicans don't even try. Are you an example of a Republican that can resonate in a blue state if they try? Well, yeah, sure. I mean, look, uh, if, first of all, with the what's going on in these cities, the book, uh, we have about five chapters about the riots in Baltimore where we had the worst violence in 47 years, 400 businesses looted and destroyed. The city was out of control. And I came in with 4,000 members of the National Guard, 1,000 police officers, and brought law and order to the city of Baltimore on the very first day. And uh, so there's, there's stories about that. But, yes, we, we do need to reach out. In, in Maryland, I have, you know, I was uh, the second Republican in 50 years to be elected and the, only the second in 242 years to be reelected. It's a tough, tough state. But I did it by reaching out and trying to go uh, where people don't expect you to go. And uh, we, we've been able to win uh, over a lot of crossover Democrats and independents and uh, suburban women and, and, and a large percentage. I mean, I have a 70 percent approval in the black community, which is almost unheard of for a Republican. But I think, you know, it's something that the party needs to be thinking about. How do you know, I'm a Reagan guy. I, I was chairman, of, a chairman of uh, Youth for Reagan and. I'm all about a big tent, and how do we how do we get more people over to our cause uh, rather than uh, you know trying to shrink the tent? So, what do you stand for? For example, where where is it a no go zone? You'll compromise, but not on this. Yeah. Look, yeah, it's look. I um, I, I just don't I don't want to waste a lot of time on uh, divisiveness and 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 dysfunction. But I'll stand up and fight for the things that I believe in. Look, we took our state. Uh, from 49, our overall economic performance was 49th out of 50 states. Uh, and I took it into the top 10. It was the greatest economic turnaround in America. I did that two years before President Trump was elected uh, under President Obama, which was a tough thing to do. Uh, we created, you know, more businesses were open, more jobs created, and, uh, and we uh, cut taxes six years in a row. So we, we've had success on the economy. We're, I'm in a tough spot. I'm in a, I'm in a state where 70% of both my houses are liberal Democrats. Uh, and yet, in spite of that, 
uh, because sometimes we've been willing to listen to the other side, and and uh, you have to reach compromise and find that middle ground where where we can all stand together, or you can't get anything done. And that's, I think, one of the frustrations with Washington. You know, everybody stakes out their territory, Republicans and Democrats, uh, and uh, and you don't try to reach, you know, nothing gets done because neither side can, uh, you know, everybody wants to win arguments as opposed to actually coming up with some kind of a bipartisan, uh, you know, solution, common sense solution to some of the problems. And so, that's, you know, I'm, I'm a lifelong conservative Republican, as I said, you know, starting out the uh, in the Reagan revolution. Uh, and, uh, and yet I'm also a pragmatist knowing that, uh, in order to get things done, uh, you know, compromise isn't a bad, isn't a dirty word. So let's talk about, uh, violence in the inner city. What do you think when you see what's happening in Portland with the autonomous zone, Seattle with the autonomous zone, Chicago, the shootings are up 50%, New York, 180%. Yeah, it's absolutely outrageous. Uh, it's, it's one of the things I talk about a lot in the book and, and, and I, I actually uh, taught a course at the National Governors Association about, ha- about teaching new governors about how to deal with this, these types of crises. Because in 2015, as I said, 90 days after becoming governor, uh, we really we had our city on, on fire. We had 120 I remember. in the first few hours, 127 police and firefighters injured and, and hospitalized. And, um, and I, uh, I immediately declared a state of emergency, and we brought in all the force we could as I mentioned, 4,000 members of the Guard, 1,000 additional police officers to back up the beleaguered city police. And uh, while we allowed for the peaceful uh, protesters to express their frustrations, we shut down the violence and the destruction. And uh, nobody got hurt after that, and nothing was destroyed. And the very first night, we rolled, uh, you know, Humvees into the city. And uh, and that's, you know, this this whole stand down and allow the the uh, mob rule and the lawlessness uh, to take over is a terrible mistake. And that's what your mayor did. And and, and then we yeah, saw that. What, yeah. And we saw that again. And then you have Joe Biden right now. now across Go ahead. The country, right. Yeah. yeah and now mayors across the country. And, and yeah. now they want to get rid of all the military hardware that's given to police, uh, you know, uh, police precincts because the military doesn't use them anymore. Are you for well, that? We, we've utilized a lot of that. Uh, but really, the more important issue, Brian, is this talk about defunding the police, which is crazy talk. Nuts. Um, you know, we've got to invest more in the police. Um, it, you know, if you if you want to deal with trying, how do we improve the situation? We need we need more police. We need to pay them better. We need to train them better and equip them better and and pay for things like community policing and get and get into there. You know, you, we have some of the worst, uh, you know, uh, violent crime and, and murders in the city of Baltimore. Uh, and yet, um, you know, there are folks saying defund the police. I mean, this doesn't make any sense. We've got to do something about the out of control, violent crime. And you can only do that with with more and better police forces. So and that, that takes more investment. So do you think uh, do you support President Trump in sending federal uh, federal troops in there or federal forces in there like <laughs> he did in Portland when the mayor doesn't want you there? And the president says, well, I need law and order. I'm going to send people there, which I think he's going to announce later this week. Do you worry about that? Yeah, no, I don't think it's the right move to tell you the truth. So I agree with the idea that you can't let the lawlessness take place and we can't let these mayors just, uh, you know, walk away from, uh, you know, taking any responsibility. And and I definitely did that, uh, you know, five and a half years ago. Uh, But but 
federal troops sending in is a different situation than a governor calling up the National Guard. National Guard are, are, are you know, they have a dual mission to serve the governor and to, and to serve the president. Or the president can call them up for a mission overseas to assist the military, or the governor can call them up to help in a situation like this. But they're citizen soldiers that work together, and they're part of the state cabinet working with the state police. Send in federal troops is a whole different level, and I don't think it's necessary because, you know, each state has a, a large contingent of National Guard. But they're not using they are, them. It, it's, yeah, well, 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 many of them are. I mean, we, we, they sh- some of them should be, uh, and, and we certainly did. But that's, that's what I would say. If the, if the police, if the city police are overwhelmed, back them up with uh, state police, and if you need more help, you bring in your state your National Guard, which is exactly the way we handled the situation. But, but, but Governor, uh, you're yeah. a governor that did that. If the governor doesn't want to do that and it's still out of control, what do you do if you're the president? Well, that's, uh, you know, we haven't got that at that point yet, but, um, you know, I understand where the president is talking about. I mean, Portland. Yeah. Portland is out of control. 44 straight days of unrest. A federal officer was just hit in the head with a two-by-four on Saturday, um, and now they're looking to set up an autonomous zone. Yeah, well, they've got to uh, they've got to get it under control, and I can't uh, I don't know all the details. Right. Of, I haven't talked to the governor. Don't know what they're doing, but they they definitely need to get. You can't have uh, you know lawless mobs just taking over cities. And if the city police can't handle it, the state police need to step in. If the state can't handle it, they better call up the national guard. So Governor Larry Hogan's got uh, this book out called "Still Standing: Surviving Cancer Riots in a Global Pandemic." Let's talk about the pandemic in the ninety seconds we have left. Um, what else could the federal government be doing? What else can these states like Florida and Texas and Arizona be doing? Well, I think, uh, you know, we're really concerned with the fact that it's, uh, this virus kind of has a mind of its own. And, and while it seemed to be under control, and it is, for example, in my state, we're, we, we're down for, you know, ni- our peak was 90 days ago. And uh, we're, we're consistently down. A number of states seem to be flaring up, like Texas and Florida and Arizona. And I think those governors are all taking some pretty good steps to try to get it under control. And uh, the good news is that we've now got a lot more testing availability than we did before. We've got contact tracing. And I think they're able to find out kind of where the spread is taking place. And hopefully, you know, the real the big thing we need, and I think we're making real progress on it, the federal government has, the Trump administration and the private sector, um, there are about 120 companies working really hard on trying to find a vaccine, which is which is what we need to really uh, stamp it out and to let everybody get back to their lives as normal. Uh, Governor, I see the headline in, in the Washington Post right now, one story. You say the president left Maryland vulnerable to the pandemic. In what way? Well, early on in the, in the uh, crisis, all, you know, when, he, when he said all the governors were kind of on their own on the testing, and I just think, I think they've done a, a pretty good job of catching up today since then, and that was a that was a, a portion of the book that the, the Post ran today. Uh, but the um, early, the first couple of months, I think there should have been a, a, a more comprehensive uh, national testing strategy. But, you know, the governor, the president repeatedly said at first, uh, anybody that wants a test can get one. And then later said, uh, you know, it was the uh, Obama administration's uh, failed uh, policy. And then later said, uh, it's, it's the uh, governors that have to do that. So they should have just that, that, I think early on uh, they were they were a little off track, but I'll give them credit. They have uh, they've stepped up a lot in the in the months uh, since then. And and the vice president's done a great job leading the coronavirus task force. And I've been on, I think, 30 some calls with the president and or vice president and all the governors. And they've done a great job of trying to uh, 
you know, communicate with all of us and, and try to solve some of these uh, problems that we had early on in the pandemic. Uh, Governor, real quick, uh, what's going to be uh, when are you going to consider whether you're going to run for president or not? You know, I think that's way too early. We got a big election coming up in November. I've got a really important uh, job until January of 2023. And uh, we're in the middle of this pandemic. And uh, there's been some speculation about that. But that's that's really furthest thing from my mind right now. I'm just uh, this book had nothing to do with that. I I just thought we had some interesting stories to tell perspective and hope people will find it interesting. Governor uh, Larry Hogan, congratulations on your success and uh, surviving and and thriving. Uh, Still standing the name of the book. Thanks, Governor. Thank you, Brian. You got it. But next is you. one 408 Newsmakers and newsbreakers. Hear it first. Only on the Brian Kilmeade Show. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory... Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. As many of you know from your own life experiences, a life in so-called blue-collar work is something to be proud of. It is very rewarding to work that has impact on your friends, your neighbors, and your family's lives. Great successes can be had in the blue-collar career. There's no degree requirement for achieving comfort, peace, and freedom. While schools cut shop classes and funnel students into colleges, there are plenty of options for hard workers who are ready to take advantage of open positions. Many young people today assume that college is the only way to achieve success in life. That is not true. Let me introduce you to Ken Rusk. Ken spent his younger years digging ditches and working in construction. He never went to college. Instead, he made goals, planned, and worked hard for 30 years. Now Ken is a successful entrepreneur with multiple businesses and revenue streams. In his national best-selling book, Blue Collar Cash, Ken shares his insights from over 30 years of working in blue-collar trades as an entrepreneur, mentor, and life coach. Now he's created a guide made specifically for you and your unique situation. This guide will give you or someone you love the tools you need to start designing the life of their dreams. You can achieve your dreams regardless of your educational background or your past. Go to KenRusk.com path to learn more. That's KenRusk.com path. Breaking news, unique opinions. Hear it all on the Brian Kilmeade Show. I did study labor economics in college. You didn't need to do that in order to understand that we are actively expanding the gap between rich and poor during this period because there is a huge disparity in the damage that is being done to the kids who are being kept home. If you look at the statistics and here in New York, depending on the district, depending on where it is, between 20 and 50 percent of kids are not logging on. They were not long. They were not doing anything during that whole entire period. Uh, and that is uh, a little bit from her interview last night. And that is to Melissa Francis. And she was just talking about what she know, learned at Ivy League school, what she knows about education, what she knows from being a mom. 
three kids. Uh, there is so much damage when kids don't go to school for a year. Think about that. No other kids uh, in the 20th, 20th, really the first half of the 20th century, and certainly the 21st century, that I know in the Western world ever miss a year of school unless they're ill. And now you're asking kids not to go to school for eight months because of something that they're almost, almost guaranteed not to get. So what lessons are you learning? Well, be scared, number one. Number two, don't worry about knuckling under should things get tough in the future. I think you got to show kids the way. When trouble, we come up with plan A, plan B, plan C. There's a fallback. The dangers with teachers are real. I get it. So we get some TAs full-time, give some 70-year-old teachers with underlying conditions some more time off, and we tell the kids, you have to find a way. That would be the message I'd send, like what I'm seeing in South Carolina and in Texas and in Florida. Jason in the House, the Jason Chaffetz Podcast. Dive deeper than the headlines and the party lines as I take on American life, politics, and entertainment. Subscribe now on foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you download podcasts. The fastest three hours in radio. You're with Brian Kilmeade. I'm going to be honest. I'm going to put myself in the player's shoes and say, I don't know if a championship is really worth it. Uh, You're going to have teams trying to limp in to a finish line. I mean, you're going to have players getting sick along the way. Is this going to feel like a real championship? Or is this feeling like whoever stayed the most healthiest and they were able to win at the finish line because you may not even have your best players out there on the basketball court and we're talking about battling for a title well i mean isn't that always the case though scotty pippen uh, as you give your uh, analysis and of course great player one of the all-time greats won six championships with the Chicago Bulls. Uh, is it worth it? I, I think it is. To finish up a season that was two-thirds done, to practice for 20 days and then play uh, through October. Uh, but I don't have to play. I'm not even allowed in the bubble, nor are you. Uh, and uh, Enes Kantor is a Swiss-born Turkish professional basketball player, good friend of the show. And uh, he's with the Boston Celtics now. Had some great years with the Knicks, too. Uh, Enes, thanks so much for coming in. Coming Hello, on. Brian. How you doing? Good. So what's the bubble like? Uh, bubble is actually not bad. I was, you know, uh, I feel like NBA trying to do everything they can to take care of the players and the coaching staff. And right now, eight team in a one hotel. Obviously, we are not allowed to leave the uh, resort and go anywhere. But uh, I think we have everything we need in this hotel. You know, the food, the, you know, the, everything else that we need. So I think so far it's been good, but we'll see if we can do this in three months. I heard the the food was bad at first. WNBA really bad. Uh, what about you guys? Has it gotten better? I heard about the WNBA and it was it was heartbroken. I I was shocked, but I think for us it's really good. Actually, you know, we are we have a lot of selection uh, and just pick anything we want. So it's been it's been good so far. So, are you glad you're playing? Uh, I think I'm, I can say that, yes, I'm glad I'm playing. I feel like we were all reaching to go out there and play the basketball. And like I said, again, NBA doing an amazing job to just take care of everything. We are literally getting tested every day. 
and it's been it's been good so far. So we should be blessed. We should be, uh, you know, grateful and uh, thankful. When you talk to your teammates, what percentage, just unofficially, do you think are are uh, glad to be playing and would aren't? Because Celtics good team this year, cha- shot at a championship, perhaps that makes a difference. But what percentage, when you're in the locker room and you're allowed to talk to each other, what, what percentage you say is all for it? Oh, all of them. You know, I, I I talk to all of my teammates, and not just my teammates with the Celtics, but like that. I talk to other teammates. My ninety in the league, so I know many uh, players out there. So all of them is just feel so you know uh, good to be just out there playing basketball again, having fun again. Because like we're all locked in in a house, and we couldn't leave our house in the quarantine. But right now, everything is slowly opening up. Uh, and all my teammates are just right now. We have one goal: just go out and win a uh, championship. Right, uh, twenty days to practice. When does your first mm-hmm. game? Uh, our first game is I think on, on the the end of July. I think July thirty uh, first against the Milwaukee Bucks. Actually, that's our toughest opponent because uh, we were the, uh, both being Celtics and and the Bucks are the top of these. Uh, we, they beat us twice. We beat them uh, twice. So I think it's going to be a, a good uh, matchup uh, for us. So how many more games do you play before you finish the regular season and start the playoffs? So we're going to play three exhibition games. Uh, uh, I think uh, it's really good because we are our body is still not ready for real games. So uh, because if we just jump into real games, I feel like we can get hurt. So I think we're gonna try, try to do everything we can to get in game shape. So that three exhibition games before the real game starts is very important. Uh, we're gonna play against Oklahoma City Thunder, Phoenix Suns, and the Houston Rockets. I think those games are are we need to focus on. It's really important. So it's gonna uh, get us ready for the uh, real games. And is he, give me a scenario here. So let's say someone on your team tests positive, and here mm-hmm. here you're in the middle of August, and someone on your team tests positive. What's the protocol then? Uh, we already had a conversation with Adam, Adam Silver about it. Uh, they said they're not going to stop the season again. I think that person who tested positive will be quarantined in his room for uh, almost two weeks. And, and then when he's clear, he's going to join back to the team. But, uh, yeah. Adam but what Silver about, what about you know. guys? So they'll say, hey, uh, you know, Ennis, you, you're, uh, your locker's right next to his. Do you have to quarantine? Uh, well, I, I mean, we get tested every day, and so I feel, and the results are coming back very fast. So I feel like I will, I will get tested, and if I'm positive, obviously I have to quarantine. But if I'm not positive, then I'll be back with my uh, teammates again. Because obviously, if you have contact, you all have contact. Right. It's going to be see you're all susceptible. But the goal right. is to keep playing uh, all the way through. So how weird is it going to be without fans? When is the last time you played so- a game that mattered with no one in the stands? Um, never. <laughs> I was, you know, I'm a big uh, wrestling fan, WWE fan. I watched the uh, WrestleMania actually this year. It was with no fans, and it was just so awkward and bizarre and stuff. I just, I don't know. It's just not the same because, like, the NBA fans, all the cheers and applause and everything. What makes what NBA is about? So. I feel like it's going to be weird because the only thing you're going to hear is just basketball bouncing and the shoes are kicking and stuff. But I think, you know, you ask any of the players, right now we are all itching to go out there and play basketball, so literally we'll take anything. Yeah, uh, and first off, you have a big uh, you have the big picture in mind. When you look at the world right now, how often do you think about your family in Turkey and how they're doing? 
a lot. I mean, obviously, uh, you guys probably heard that the, my dad is finally has has his uh, freedom after uh, seven years. You know, we've been uh, fighting against the, the Turkish government years now. But you know, I would like to thank to the, the definitely uh, people like yourself, my teammates, coaches, and the NBA family because they've been so amazing and they they their support gives me so much hope and strength. So I feel like I feel like it's uh, my dad is finally has his freedom, but my fight is far from over because you know the, my family is only one, my dad is only one. So we just you know I feel like I'm not going to stop talking about all this stuff till every innocent soul in these chairs are uh, free. Right, and uh, they want you extradited, right? They want you to to try yeah. you. I mean, it's it's funny because I mean they keep calling me a terrorist, and I'm actually telling them I say, listen. Only thing I terrorize is the basketball room, because it's just it's crazy. Because like I want freedom, I want democracy in my country, freedom in my country, I want human rights in my country. But just because I want those things, it just makes me a terrorist. It just I don't know what to say. But like whenever they say anything like that, we sit down with my teammates in a locker room and just laugh about it because my teammates and coaches knows what kind of person I am. So I'm not really worried about what they're saying, and also. I don't even have a parking ticket in the U.S. How they how they can literally just extradite me back to Turkey that I didn't even do anything? Are you going to have a slogan on your back? Uh, yes, I will. I will just say for uh, freedom, because I mean that word is going to represent not just in my country, but because people are having trouble with that word all over the world. So I feel like that word is going to represent. Not just the issues happening in my country, but uh, the issues that happen uh, all over the world. Nice. So you'll have freedom on your back. That's it's pretty cool. Yep. And and yep. over, overall, what do you think about the condition of our country in some of these major cities? I mean, I feel like uh, I feel like I will just say, say this: we are just so focusing on blaming each other. We should have one goal, which is how can we make this country better together. Yeah, I mean, see, some of the news out there is just so negative, you know? So I feel like we just need to focus on uh, just how can we get through this to, together? Because we are experiencing, like, with COVID and what's happened in the last two months, all those uh, social justice issues. How can we get this to together? But, like, you open up some of the channels out there. It's just like there's so many negative news out there uh, blaming the, you know, the the... the the Trump administration blaming the other other people. So I feel like our focus should be on just one thing: how can we get through this together? So like I, I feel like we got to do this uh, together. Right. And if uh, along the way, do you see any scenario where the Knicks are ever good again? <laughs> that's, a, that's the toughest question you asked me. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'll be honest with you. Look, listen, they have a very good, talented young, you know, uh, player. So I feel like in like few years, I hope uh, they're gonna get better. They're gonna get experience. But I, but I think, yeah, I believe in like three to four years, uh, I believe they, they're gonna be a playoff uh, contender. Right. Right now, we could say we're not going. Uh, we're not going to Nick games because of social distancing. <laughs> uh, but it's they're really they didn't even qualify to go into the bubble. Um, right. And you were one of their hardest working players. Uh, Ennis Cantor, thanks so much. Best of luck for the Celtics. You guys building a team the right way through trades and op- optimistic, uh, opportunistic signings. And you have a great young coach. Appreciate it, Ennis. 
Thank you, man. Always been a good talk to you. All right. Go Celtics. one 408 When we come back, it's your turn. I also get to some of your emails. Uh, you're listening to The Brian Kilmeade Show. Don't move. A radio show of the people for the people. You're with Brian Kilmeade. With Fox News Podcasts Plus, you can enjoy all your favorite Fox News podcasts without commercials. Subscribe now at foxnewspodcasts.com. The talk show that's getting you talking. You're with Brian Kilmeade. There was no such organized effort to protect the safety of people who were engaged in these massive protests in city after city. No organized efforts at safety whatsoever. And I do not recall MSNBC or CNN or anybody else being concerned about uh, the safety of people who attended those those uh, gatherings. But suddenly, when it is involving a President Trump rally, then, of course, then these safety measures are of a paramount. But when it's when it's a, a large gathering uh, with uh, with a political message that MSNBC NBC would agree with, suddenly safety measures are really uh, on the back burner. And just a reminder, for what it's worth, there is no editorial point of view here uh, on any of these newscasts on MSNBC in the daytime. Exactly. I've brought that up so often. If you want bland, just no point of uh, point of view news, it's MSNBC. One-stop shopping, especially from Tuck Todd, who basically looks like he's going to burst into flames every time he talks about the president of the United States, who I understand has hired somebody to permanently sweep his Wikipedia to make sure none of no negative things get on there, like that he is extremely biased and that he goes to parties for presidential candidates that are not Republican. That is so unbelievable to me uh, that he would actually make that statement and that people are like to let it fly. Not everybody is letting it fly. We'll uh, talk about that throughout this uh, Thursday edition of uh, The Big Show. Uh, this is pretty amazing what's happening right now uh, with the violence that we're seeing in the, in the streets. And the president of the United States has an opportunity. I wish he didn't. And I think on some level he he's glad he wished he didn't either. He's a law and order president and watched law and order on his watch get out of control, if you look at it generally. If you look at it specifically, it is these Democratic permissive cities that are just imploding before our eyes. Think about this. Seattle. Female mayor who says, let's go ahead and let everybody just blow off some steam. I think it's going to be a summer of love with the autonomous zone. It's going to be great. And when it goes in spiraling into crime and pestilence, they say, well, you, you critics are sexist and you're biased. Really? And then in the end, they had to come through and get the cops who were forced to give up their precinct to take their cities back after all these businesses are done. In Minneapolis, they said, let the homeless pitch tents in the park. Now there's hundreds of tents. They're making up their own government, and they don't know how to get rid of them. There are thousands of people living for free on public land, destroying what was left of Minneapolis, who, by the way, had the audacity to ask the president for some money to fix their city that they let get out of control as they blew off steam. Portland, 43 days of unrest, brutal unrest, organized unrest. And when cops are called, 
They basically aren't empowered. When the liberal mayor says things are out of control, he asks the cops to get involved. When the Fed, uh, feds, uh, when the federal government send officers, one took a two-by-four to the head over the weekend. Now the president, I think, is going to announce within the next 48 hours, maybe as early as late as next Monday, that he's going to have a plan to send in federal troops, including the FBI, to try to claim a little bit of order where there is none. Because of this stance— And because Joe Biden's been invisible, he said, I don't want to defund the police, but that's it. Do you see him getting upset at the statues? Do you see him getting upset at government property? Do you see him getting upset with the looting and rioting? Do you see him getting upset with the murders in New York where the shootings were up 186 percent, 33 percent in Los Angeles, 150 percent in Chicago? No. But because of that, Donald Trump has an opportunity and he took it. Yesterday, he got it. The president of the National Association of Police Organizations said, we sat out the last election. We could not decide between Hillary and Trump. We've decided now. We are backing Donald Trump. That's 250,000 direct members. Thousands. Two hundred, uh, Yeah, 250 million Excuse me, 250,000 direct uh, members. Now, think about all those who are retired. Think about those families. And they say, well, who's the law and order president? Who gives respect to the cops? Cut one, Mick McHale. So it's with great pride that I announce on behalf of our National Association of Police Organizations, our endorsement of President Donald J. Trump. It's significant. And it also could be an opportunity. And I thought Kimberly Strassel put it great last night when she was was with the Wall Street Journal, Fox News contributor, when she says this is big, but it could actually be bigger because that's a union. Unions usually run from Republicans, not this Republican necessarily, especially with these USMCA signed and doing other things about bringing manufacturing back to this country. Cut four. So this is a function of what we're now seeing as growing unrest and violence. It's one thing to have protests and some civil unrest. This is now turning into a long, hot summer of violence and looting. And it's putting a new spotlight on this question of of law and order and rule and law of cities. And the president's embracing that. One thing that I think is interesting about that endorsement is it raises a broader prospect of whether or not the White House has some potential for inroads with union votes, not just among police officers, but firefighters, uh, people who work in infrastructure um, and and fossil fuels, because those are going to be big points and flashpoints of contention in this election. If the Trump campaign can clarify and condense their message and talk about what Kimberly Strassel just said, you know, with President Trump, if there's a President Biden, goodbye oil and gas, goodbye drilling, offshore drilling, uh, refineries being built, it's just not going to happen. Uh, natural gas is not going to be exported with any great fervor. They believe even though natural gas burns clean, uh, it is part of the problem, fossil fuel. So there's an opportunity to win over those unions and those workers and solidify Texas, which is key. The other thing that the Trump campaign is counting on is the so-called silent vote. And they believe the silent majority is going to stay silent because to say I'm a Trump supporter in purple areas or blue states like uh, technically Pennsylvania, even though it didn't go, uh, it it went red last time, is trouble. And they believe the numbers around 67 percent believe there's there's silent Trump voters. Five percent say there are silent Biden voters because there's no price to pay to be a Biden supporter or a Democratic supporter. You're not going to pay it in prestige. You're not going to lose your job. Um, So... That's significant. They'll need it because the president's trailing in almost every major poll and every battleground state. 
The bounce back has to happen. Brad Parscale steps down. Stepping in, Bill Stepien. He's an organized guy with a lot of experience. Let's see if he can get his A-team back. Bring the band back together. It's the Hammer Time Podcast. Fox News Channel's Bill Hammer takes you one-on-one with engaging personalities covering the critical issues of the day. Find Hammer Time now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. America's listening to Fox News. From the Fox News Radio Studios in New York City, giving you opinions and facts with a positive approach. It's Brian Kilmeade. Thanks so much for listening, everybody. It's the Brian Kilmeade Show. I'll be steaming your way at the bottom of the hour. I'm going to look forward to talking to Hawk Newsom of, of uh, Black Lives Matter, New York Division. He's going to be talking about maybe what happened on Brooklyn Bridge yesterday in New York, where uh, officers were attacked, bludgeoned, including uh, Chief Monahan was had a broken finger, hit in the head. Uh, what happened? They were marching with other African-American leaders, talking about peace and coming together, and all hell broke loose. Just part of the chaos that happens on a nightly basis in New York that really has been happening since late May uh, and through Chicago and through other cities. And I look forward to getting uh, the Black Lives Matter perspective, too, and hearing like people in the black community are saying, hey, listen, I'm for uh, uh, equal rights. I'm for racial justice, but not for them. So we'll talk about that. Uh, meanwhile, uh, when we talk to Hawk Newsom at the bottom of the hour, in between, right before that, I'll be able to take your calls at one 408 7669 So let's get to the big three. Now with the stories you need to know, it's Brian's Big Three. Number three. We have other cities that are out of control. They're like war zones. And if the city isn't going to straighten it out of local politicians, or we're not going to put up with that. But what if they don't want you, Mr. President? Law and order, a new low as incompetent liberal mayors from Chicago to Portland to New York, sideline cops and welcome chaos. We're at the breaking point and the president said he is prepared to take uninvited action, but should he? Number two. One of the biggest predictors and one of the best ways to get out of poverty is early education. It's not college. It's elementary school. It's middle school where you learn about yourself, where you learn all of the basics. That was Melissa Francis yesterday with me when I was filling in for Tucker, talking about the need to get back to school. COVID-19 is not going anywhere. As many cities decide to keep their schools closed and hamstring businesses. Does anyone have proof that both these things work to suppress the virus? To me, the only guarantee is we'll crush business and academic achievement. Number one. Remember, Bill Stepien was at the White House. And he was moved over to campaign just a couple of months ago. He will become the Trump campaign manager. And Brad is going to be handling all the digital work that he was known for and famous for in 2016. And he'll remain a senior advisor on the campaign. And that was Dana Perino also on with me last night on Tucker 2020. The president makes a change at the top as he finds himself trailing in four major polls. However, he might just have a secret weapon, and that secret is support, who don't want to admit they're supporting him. Plus, he just picked up a major endorsement from a police union that used to be buddies with Biden. And we'll talk about that. And, you know, this secret Trump support, we knew it. It won them the election last time. They didn't show up in the polls, but they showed up on Election Day. And that is why... 
I believe that he is so concerned about mail-in ballots because people show up on Election Day and he gets concerned, as I do, that the cutoff date of October 31st of mailing in ballots, a lot just won't show up. This ballot harvesting is a huge issue. He should really fight hard for that. But he's got law and order on his side. He's got American history on his side, the war on history. He's on the right side of that. I'm convinced of it on the right side, not only my side, which tends to be the right side, according to me, but also I think most of the American people's side. So that's why I believe he uh, should feel uh, better than the polls indicate today. So about this secret, uh, I don't know what we call it, the secret Trump voter, they did a poll. And they said, do you think there are so-called secret voters in your community who support Donald Trump but won't tell anyone about it? 27% of you said yes. 17% said only a few. And not sure how many, 13%. Now for Joe Biden... Same question. Do you think there are secret Biden supporters? 5%. Yes, only a few. 13%. Yes, not sure. 9%. No, 64%. And that's right. Because there are no quiet Biden supporters. There aren't Biden supporters. There's only anti-Trump supporters. So yesterday the president got word right when I was, I'd say about 7 p.m. This is big. The president of the National Association of Police Organizations have picked a candidate. They didn't in 2016. They did in 2012 and 20, excuse me, 2008 and 2012. And they picked Barack Obama. Why? Because Joe Biden was on the ticket. He was known as a law and order Democrat. But he has flipped in order to be a Democrat representing today's Democratic Party. And guess who picked up on that? Mick McHale, who's the president. Cut one. So it's with great pride that I announce on behalf of our National Association of Police Organizations, our endorsement of President Donald J. Trump. In, important, for a few reasons. Trump earned it. Trump lives that. If you talk to cops in New York City, people that are retired or active, they've always liked him. If you talk to the Secret Service, they don't. They only like the president. They like his family. He really respects what they do. And for Kimberly Strassel of the Wall Street Journal, she weighed in and said, look, this is big. Why? It represents 250,000 people. But then think about their families and think about their friends. And then think about those who say it's dangerous on the streets. We're not getting any backup. We're not getting any support. Well, who's your mayor? Democrat. Who's your governor? Well, the Republican, but he has no control of the Democratic cities. Okay. And then you have a president saying, I'm going to send in federal troops and he's about to. Not the army, but I think there's federal officers he's going to be sending in there and the FBI to investigate there. So Kimberly Strassel cites this as significant, but what she says at the end is more significant. So this is a function of what we're now seeing as growing unrest and violence. It's one thing to have protests and some civil unrest. This is now turning into a long, hot summer of violence and looting, and it's putting a new spotlight on this question of, of law and order and rule and law of cities, and the president's embracing that. One thing that I think is interesting about that endorsement is it raises a broader prospect of whether or not the White House has some potential for inroads with union votes, not just among police officers, but firefighters, uh, people who work in infrastructure um, and, and fossil fuels, because those are going to be big points and flashpoints of contention in this election. He just got to make sure he's not anti-environment, but pro-business. He's already proven it. And he's not anti-union. And I think the USMCA, they actually said, hey, guys, union, what do you think? We're going to start bringing manufacturing back. We're going to call out China. The president's doing that. Everybody else pretended to do it. 
He's not only doing that, he's actually sending aircraft carriers there. He had his Secretary of State uh, announce sanctions against key Chinese officials. And then we've had the Secretary of Treasury talk about uh, different sanctions, not only for human rights, which Pompeo handled, but when it comes to intellectual property theft. So Ari Fleischer, who knows politics as well as everyone, great communicator, talked about the hidden vote. You know, do they exist? Cut six. When you look at our culture today and when you look at the price you can pay for wearing a MAGA hat, for going into a store with a Trump sign on, and the way you get attacked, you go to a restaurant to have a meal and you get thrown out of the restaurant, people get used to this and they say, I'm just not going to talk about it anymore. And it's the intolerance that then makes people a hidden voter. Uh, There's nothing he said that's disputable. Now, I brought that up today with a surrogate for Joe Biden. I did it on television on Fox and Friends. And he said, well, a lot of people are embarrassed to vote for David Duke, but he got a lot more in the polls. And I said, you do not associate the president with David Duke. He said, no, I'm just giving that as an example. But I get the message that he got. Uh, Donald Trump is not a racist. Uh, Despite what you may hear on a regular basis, he's not. People that know him know he's not. And people that support him would never support a racist. I'm telling you, they don't exist. There are racists out there that want to support Donald Trump, and there are racists that want to support Joe Biden. I can't control that. The candidate can't control that. What the president has is control. He's not that candidate on the outside having huge rallies, which he likes. He's now got the job. So he's got the ball. And the ball right now is all about playing one game, the pandemic. Thoroughly believe that because it affects everybody's life, whether it's your job, whether it's your kids, whether it's your grandkids. You have been affected by the pandemic, the vacation that was canceled, the games that no longer happen, the season tickets that you can no longer redeem. Everywhere you go, when you travel or you have forced to quarantine, the pandemic. Now, when the smartest scientists of the world say, "Okay, according to my professional view, if you wash your hands and wear a mask, you've done everything possible. So what can the president come up with? Well, we can expedite the testing. Absolutely. We can make sure we get crisp, fast results, accurate results. Sure. But it's ultimately going to be up to the cities, the states, the counties, not the president. He's got the resources, flood the zone, provide the, the, the rescue packages, which I think another one's coming. But most of all, the president's not doing something else. While he's cheering for the end of it and talking optimistically – where people say he's lying, he's actually just trying to get people to understand there's going to be light at the end of the tunnel. He's got to show some empathy because the people that are dying are seniors and most of his base are seniors. The people that get it and survive are young and they're not voting for him anyway. He has to fly around and let people know he cares and understands, even if he's somewhat hamstrung about what he can do. Cut seven. People are still genuinely scared about it. And look, Sean, the president's poll numbers were never higher than in March and April when the president talked about his friend who died of COVID. What advice he would give Barron about it, where he said to Barron, his son, how bad it is. That was the empathy the president was showing as somebody who cared about COVID, protecting the American people. His job is to protect us from all enemies, including the COVID enemy. He's got to talk about it. He's got to lead the country on it and show that he cares. He's a tough guy. We all know that. He's also got to show he's a caring guy. And I think he does care about the people of this country. Oh, so he's got to shit. show it indeed, not just word. And, and it's not that hard. It's, I mean, I, some people have problems showing strength. Other people have trouble showing empathy because they think it says weakness or sympathy shows weakness or a pity. 
So I think the president could do it. He, he can meet with the families, hear what they have to say, understand the frustration, you know, be behind the glass at a senior center as they look up and they're talking to their loved one, their grandmother, their aunt, uh, their uncle, their dad, and start saying, wow, man, I understand what's going on. I lost three friends when it happened to the point where people say, well, Mr. President, easy on the friends. You keep saying the same thing. I would have no problem with that. So when you see the human cost of what's happening, you see him pushing the materials, which is real, and the interacting with the governors, you know, outside Governor Cuomo, who's a sociopath, has to be, because Governor Newsom understands it does no good to alienate the president. The president says it's no good, even though they're not going to vote for me in California to alienate him. All you have to do is show him respect. He doesn't care what. Look at Governor Murphy over in New Jersey. They've, I don't love the way he's handling this pandemic. But I just love the mutual respect between two business people. That's not happening with the governor. He's, he's mercurial to, to be kind. The big story now is getting kids to school. So, Mr. President, say the story. Kids got to go to school. Understand. Just sit. I understand this could be risky and scary for teachers. You're in the last leg of a great career. You're 68 years old. Uh, maybe you're coming off some uh, uh, cancer treatment or you're, you have leukemia or had leukemia or you have uh, diabetes and you're a little worried you have the underlying conditions. Well, then it's time for it to set up maybe some funds. To, you don't go back till we get this vaccine rolling. And maybe we get some teacher's assistance actually in class, teaching 15 kids instead of helping teach 30. There are so many things creative educators can do. So when MSNBC and CNN are trying to make sure we don't go back to school and make sure our economies don't stand up, and I'm not kidding, it is clear. They had a bunch of doctors on to tell them how dangerous school is. And then they asked these doctors, what about your kids? Would you send them to school? I'm surprised MSNBC even aired this. Cut 14. Would you let your kids go back to school? I will. My kids are looking forward to it. Yes. Period. Absolutely. Absolutely. As much as I can. (laughs) Without a hesitation. Without a hesitation, yes. I have no concerns about sending my child to school in the fall. I would let my kids go back to school. Dr. John Torres, NBC News. Yep. He's probably fired. <laughs> Hi, John, pack up. Uh, how dare you put that in the piece and make me look like I'm covering actual news with results that aren't rigged and a game that isn't fixed. So the other thing that Melissa Francis brought up last night that it's worthy of playing, then I'm going to co- take a break and we're going to get ready for Hawk Newsom from Black Lives Matter. Yeah, Melissa Francis brought up the fact that, yeah, the kids might not only want to go to school, the kids that are going to suffer most are the ones that already are suffering economically disadvantaged and her reasoning is sound cut 15 i did study labor economics in college you didn't need to do that in order to understand that we are actively expanding the gap between rich and poor during this period because there is a huge disparity in the damage that is being done to the kids who are being kept home if you look at the statistics and here in new york depending on the district depending on where it is between 20 and 50 percent of kids are not logging on. They were not logging. They were not doing anything during that whole entire period. And I have very close to two elementary school teachers, and they say it is brutal. 20 hours a day, they're getting calls from parents at the end of the day that are very clued in, zoned in. Other parents, you can't get them on the phone. You also can't get kids in the seats. Can't pay attention. You just, they do not think they're learning anything. A lot of parents are looking into homeschooling their kids. 
So where do you stand on all this? I want you to weigh in, one 408 7669 And also, at the bottom of the hour, when it comes to Black Lives Matter and racial justice, I know when it comes to race relations, I think everyone's clued in. When it comes to some things about Black Lives Matter, people need some questions answered about their mission, their goals, and what happened yesterday on the Brooklyn Bridge. You'll listen to The Brian Kilmeade Show. Holding our politicians' feet to the fire, no matter who they are. That's Brian Kilmeade. From the Fox News Podcasts Network, download and listen to The Untold Story with Martha McCallum. The host of The Story on Fox News Channel sits down with major newsmakers each week to get their untold story. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. He's so busy, he'll make your head spin. It's Brian Kilmeade. Hey, welcome back, everyone. Got a full board. Lynn is listening on the TuneIn app in Illinois. Hey, Lynn. Hi. Kids go to school? Are you part of the 42% that are worried? No, my kids need to go to school. Are they? Yes. Okay, so your, your city is letting them go. Our city is giving the parents a choice of in-person or remote learning. And you're choosing in-person? Yes. My daughter chose in-person. How old is she? 13. Nice. Thanks, Lynn. Nick, WABC, Rockland, New York. Yeah, I just wanted to say that. Yeah, Brian, I just wanted to say that I was in school this year after the virus in New York, and nothing ever happened. No one got the virus. What grade are you in? What college? I'm not in college. I'm in in 11th grade. And you went to school? Was it uh, in Rockland? Yeah. So are your are your classmates worried? No, I mean school just ended, but we we, we went back to school. I go to private school. I'm religious. And what about your uh, what about your teachers? Did they express worry? No, no, because we all got the virus, so we said there was no there was no reason not to come back. We all had the virus. Uh, okay, so Rockland was quarantined, basically cordoned off, wasn't it? Well, we all got the virus. Everyone got it. So we all assumed that we're not going to get it again. So we all just went back to school. Great. Thanks. Evelyn, WHIO in Ohio. Evelyn, you're a teacher. Hey. Yes, sir. I'm a teacher. I teach high school and middle school. And? And the majority, (laughs) I had a lot of kids not do any work the last quarter, and um, they did not give them failing grades. Um, Had a kid call me a month after school was out and asked if he could do anything so that he was eligible to play football because I had not taken any work from him and um, he had an F. It's unbelievable. So you want to go back, you'll take a risk. Do you have any underlying conditions? I don't have any underlying conditions. My husband does, but we're not concerned. Got it. Uh, Evelyn, I feel the same way, but I'm not a teacher. Uh, I have no problem sending my kids back, uh, and I hope they go back to college, and I hope my daughter gets to play soccer this year. When we come back, we speak to Hawk Newsom, Black Lives Matter. From the Fox News Podcasts Network. I'm Ben Domenech, publisher of The Federalist, and I'm inviting you to join a new conversation with the smartest thinkers out there about the country and where we're going. Subscribe to the Ben Domenech Podcast. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com.
Information you want. Truth you demand. This is the Brian Kilmeade Show. All right, welcome back. We're waiting on Hawk Newsom. I don't want to uh, take any time away from him, but if we get him on the line, we'll put him right in. Uh, we have a lot to discuss today. As you know, the three things we're talking about, and we're talking with a lot of them. Um, what we're talking about, too, is the, the law and disorder in Chicago, Portland, Seattle, New York, Philadelphia, and in particular, the President of the United States taking action. And keep in mind, Eisenhower took action to make sure the schools got desegregated, sent in federal troops. We're not talking about that. We're talking about setting in federal officers with a plan. The problem is you got these mayors who have said flat out, we do not want federal help. They need it. But they don't want it. And if President Biden, they would because it's pure politics, which is should drive you nuts because this pure politics is getting us nowhere and is causing unrest maybe with your business, your family, uh, your house. So Mayor de Blasio sees the unrest that hope it happened on Brooklyn Bridge yesterday as uh, African-American leaders, clergy, were walking across with uh, police officers, Brooklyn Bridge, to say we got to come together as a community. It was telegraphed, it was announced, and it was headed off by Black Lives Matter group, at least claiming to be, many of which had clubs and two-by-fours, and they started hitting the cops. You have to see this video on New York Post. It is outrageously inappropriate and disgusting. It's on the front page of the New York Post too. And even uh, Chief Monahan got hit, broke a finger and got hit in the head. Bill de Blasio does not show up, does not express it, but has a uh, press conference to announce his new anti-violence campaign and has nothing but Black Lives Matter around him, which is fine. But there's no police officers around him, which is not fine. They have to do the implementing. I want you to listen to this. This is Bill de Blasio, the most clueless man in America, cut 23. Yes, we need to have more officers in the right places. So you'll see additional deployments in Brooklyn, carefully coordinated with the community. You're also gonna see a community effort that's gonna make a huge impact called Occupy the Hotspots. And that's a specific effort on Friday and Saturday in seven locations in central Brooklyn to go where the problems have been. And with that human presence, that community presence. Yeah, really? So you work in two jobs. Oh, uh, honey, I have to go to a, a, a hot spot in our town, usually run down, crime ridden, possibly a drug deal. And I'm going to have that presence as opposed to the cops who get paid to do this in uniform and went to the academy. They said it was Dermot Shays, who's a commissioner, idea. Well, if it's his idea, he should really be there. Cut 24. By being out here, you are sending the message. It's your neighborhood. No one else gets to make the rules. The peacemakers make the rules in this neighborhood. The peacemakers. Exactly. Because so many times people who break the law just need to be stopped by a peacemaker. Oftentimes, the unarmed, untrained are the best people to deal with it, especially those who have no clue how to handle it. Uh, maybe you have a you're the would be assailant or suspect has a mental problem, a drug addiction. Maybe he's violent or she, and maybe you should just send someone untrained and unworthy to go over there to straighten out their neighborhood. Like they don't have enough to do, like putting food on the table at a time in which unemployment's at twelve percent and fifty percent of the country is out of work, and New York City is crime ridden who can't get even the trains running on time, now we're going to go police our own neighborhoods as opposed to letting the police police our neighborhoods. So in Chicago, uh, shootings are up 76%. And 
some of the comedians, higher profiles in the African-American community that recognize that you could sit there and reform law enforcement and maybe it's just, but black and black crime is what's killing them. Cut 27 is a few comedians who came together, uh, Big Keith, Early Walker, Corey Bell. Cut 27. We as a people have to start coming together and take our communities back. When you start killing kids, you're actually killing our future. You can't hold anybody else accountable until you hold yourself accountable. We're tired of us killing us. We're tired of the black-on-black crime as it relates to our babies being gunned down. Steve Lewis on WDBO in Orlando, Florida. Hey, Steve. Hey, good morning, Brian. The law and order president has got to bring some law and order to these cities, and then he'll get the votes. Hello? You agree? I was actually referring to... uh... Hmm. Greg, listen on KGWA in Oklahoma. Hey, Greg. Good morning, Brian. How you doing? Great. What's on your mind? Well, uh, we keep hearing a lot about socialists and, and our republic and all that. Last night, I got a good view of it. Uh, about two weeks ago here in Enid, uh, they decided that they wanted to bring a, a referendum up to mandate masks for everybody in the open. Last night uh, at 5.30 in the evening, uh, from what I understand, about 250, we have a, a population of 50,000 people here. 250 people showed up at a council meeting, and it was struck down five to two. What we was? will not accept a government telling us that we have to wear something when all they have to do is ask. And we would, the American people will do that. But you mandate us to do it, and I guarantee you there's going to be a firestorm that people will not understand. Well, we're seeing it, but Greg, do you put a seatbelt on? Yes, sir, I do. So, they, I mean, people went crazy when they put that seatbelt rule in. We want to make our own decisions. And yes, now sir. we're just and, used and to I, it. And I understand that. But also, uh, I went through a driving course that taught me what the repercussions of not is. And I understand that I have a – it's not a great big uh, uh, percentage chance, but I got a better chance with that belt on than I do without it. So I understand the concept, but the data backs that up. The data does not back up mandating masks for everybody. I don't care what they say. We have to understand we've got 350 million people in this country, and there's only been 150,000. These are, these are numbers that are minuscule in comparison to the amount of people that are in this country. I do not understand the concept of forcing 300 and, say, 25 million people to do something just because it affects 5 million people. That does not make common sense. You like the Sweden model of take those susceptible under any conditions and seniors, get them yes, safe, sir. and let us work. Uh, yes, sir. I understand. You. And if you, if you, if somebody you know and are going to visit is got underlying conditions, you wear the mask. Is that what you're saying? Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Absolutely. I hear I you. Especially, I, I understand the my, my mayor comes up and asks me, says, to our citizenry, Please wear masks when you go into stores, when you go into restaurants and things like that. We understand that you're going to have to raise your mask to eat. You're going to have to raise your mask to drink. But this will help to mitigate the situation. Gotcha. It's not going to stop it. It will help mitigate it. But don't try to tell me I have to. I hear you. Thanks, Greg. Uh, and by the way, here's the 
Here's what drives me crazy. They told us for three months we don't wear a mask. The, the Surgeon General told us not to wear a mask. It make things worse. Other things he says it won't help. And then uh, Dr. Fauci never wore a mask. Now he's got to wear a mask. And the fact that we didn't in the past, he's mad at us. We're not worthy of him. I'm not a fan. I'm just not a fan. I would never have written that editorial in the USA Today. Are you kidding? It shows an administration that's out of touch with each other. You don't want to do that. But I'm watching Laura Ingram last night, and I'm interviewing Ronnie Jackson yesterday. Listen to Ronnie Jackson, a doctor to three presidents, and now have a congressional seat, we believe, in Texas. So he was asked, by the way, a rear admiral in the military, in the, in the Navy. Let's listen. And uh, so I think you got to look at your personal circumstances. You got to look at your surroundings. You got to decide if that's right for you. And I'm a firm believer that that's uh, at this point a personal, a personal choice. And uh, I encourage people, if they want to wear a mask, to wear a mask. But uh, I, I don't wear a mask all, all that often, to be honest with you. <laughs> really? What about Dr. Scott Jensen on the Ingram angle last night, a physician? Cut 13. I think a fair amount of people in public health in this country have absolutely fractured the trust with the public. The public isn't buying it. This idea of a teacher saying that it's gone up 65 percent, quite frankly, I think Dr. Atlas out of Stanford came out and he said, if you're under the age of 70, your case fatality rate is 0.04, which is less than half of a lot of flu epidemics. Quite honestly, we're not getting facts anymore. We are just getting opinions and we need to focus on sustainable measures. We know that if you can keep your hands away from your eyes, your nose, your mouth, cover your mouth when you cough. Don't go out if you're sick. Do some physical distancing. A lot of this stuff is just whack-a-mole versus actual science. And quite frankly, science has been sacrificed at the altar of panic. And that's a physician. And Dr. Fauci and others never say anything about this pandemic is going to destroy American life. Should Trump have acted quicker? Possibly. Should we have thought about a pandemic earlier? Yeah. Uh, should every state have been uh, been warehoused with all this PPE and possible ventilators? Absolutely. But the whole country was called flat-footed. And now you want the whole country to get a mask, as if we're all idiots and don't remember you didn't tell us to do that in the spring. And you still, we still bent the curve. Now the curve is going up, and they say, how dare you not wear a mask? Kids got to go to school. We got to go back to work. And we got to play fall sports. Is that possible? When we come back, we'll continue uh, to search for Hawk Newsom and take your calls. You listen to The Brian Kilmeade Show. Big Thursday. It's Brian Kilmeade. From the Fox News Podcasts Network, download and listen to The One with Craig Gutfeld, the co-host of The Five, like you've never heard him before. You know him, you love him, you want to be like him. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. From his mouth to your ears, it's Brian Kilmeade. There will always be people who say that these things cannot be done. I remember very vividly in 2013, you would have imagined it would have been impossible to end the broken and unconstitutional policy of stop and frisk. We were sold a bill of goods. We were lied to every day, being told that if we ended that policy, there would be crime and chaos everywhere. And thank God most of us didn't listen to that hype. What you did is you ended stop and frisk, and according to Rudy Giuliani, the experts, maybe they got too intense with Bratton and Bloomberg. And what happened is you pulled your 600-man anti-crime force off the streets. They were able to find out where the drugs were coming from, what the main crime was, who the perpetrators were, where MS-13 were. So you pulled them off at the same time. There's no stop and frisk. And now everyone's got a gun, and they're all killing people, And which is uh, beyond sad is kids are dying. 
And this idiot is acting like he's some hero that you have to believe in me like he's Norman Vincent Peale. Follow me through fire. New York City shootings uh, in one year up 186%. Chicago up 76%. And Atlanta up 124%. In Los Angeles up 33%. They all have Democratic mayors. All don't want federal help. And all will be getting it. This is going to be sad in a way and scary because you're going to see federal officers there who have the latent support, I imagine, from local cops, but not the political support, uh, support from the mayors. Therefore... Law and disorder, before it could change to law and order, uh, there's going to be confrontation amongst law enforcement at all different levels. And that is nuts. Bernard Carrick, beside himself, police commissioner for a while, cut 29. There's 800 to 900,000 local, state and federal police officers, law enforcement officers in this country. And if they're watching the news, if they're watching what's going on on a daily basis around the country, whether it's Atlanta, New York City, Baltimore, Portland, Seattle, the Democrats are completely anti-police, anti-law enforcement. If that's the case, there's only one vote you need, and that's for this president who has consistently, since he's gone in office, consistently been a super pro-law and order president. I think this, NAPO, is only the beginning of what's to come for the president and his campaign. I would still have a racial justice component with law enforcement official on there, with uh, uh, um, uh, different urban leaders on there, and say, here's a commission, let's talk about what's happening in the cities. At the same time, show support for law enforcement, because Joe Biden's losing it, lost it, and even though he's not for defund the police, people around him are. Charlotte is listening on WABC in Princeton, New Jersey. Charlotte. Oh, hello, Brian. Thank you for taking my call. I'd like to ask you why you continually refer to these blue city mayors as incompetent. Why? I, I believe that this is all part of the ongoing Democrat plan to create chaos and to control the population. I believe that um, allowing all these illegal activities to keep going on in the cities is all part of, as I said, their plan to create chaos and ultimately control the population. And make it seem like this country's spiraling out of control and we have to make a change? Yes. Uh, exactly. I would say this. That's possibly the grand scheme, but I see the looks in the faces of this mm-hmm. idiot in Portland and the woman in Seattle and how Mayor Lightfoot is so overwhelmed. And I think to myself, uh, there is no way that they are enjoying this. And the mayor, remember, there was overwhelmed in Baltimore a few years ago. I don't think that was part of a master plan. That was, to me, looked like incompetence, where they believe that if I, I understand your anger, I'll take a, you know, I understand your anger, I'll give you some room to blow off some steam. I won't make sure but they don't bring riot equipment to a riot. I'll make sure my cops stand down, don't make any arrests. They believe that's the way to handle it. That's why I say incompetent. You believe that they know how to handle it, and they're intentionally doing it poorly. I think you're giving them too much credit. Okay. Um, I, I, I really believe that, that they are all, this is part of the master plan. And, you know, so are you was, for the president doing something about it, like he's about to announce? He's the only one that he needs to show leadership, and he's the only one that's tough enough to do it. 
So I, I do support him doing that, even though it, it, you know, it can be difficult because of the laws in the country about, you know, him not being able to, uh, you know, activate the military in these in these uh-huh. states, that it's really the governor's responsibility. Thanks but so much. Charlotte, you, more... well, all right. Real quick. OK, so when they when they dismantled CHOP in Seattle, I believe that the leadership of, of the whoever was occupying that area was told that they that they needed to get their people out of there because this is starting to become a campaign issue for Joe Biden. Maybe. Uh, Charlotte, you are a great caller. That's how you were labeled. Kerry Kupek is a spokesperson for the uh, for the Department of Justice. She talked about the mayor of Portland rejecting federal help, even though the city is out of control. Cut 28. I was particularly dismayed by the comments made by that Portland mayor, considering that just over the weekend, a protester went after one of our U.S. marshals with a hammer, hitting him over and over and over again. Protesters were surging federal buildings. Uh, They were armed with sledgehammers, with slingshots, with lasers. And the fact that you have elected officials, and I don't care if you're Republican or Democrat, but if you are an elected official and you are prioritizing your own personal politics and violent anarchists and agitators, over the safety and security of the very people who elected you. That's not leadership. That's a disgrace. Yep. Uh, that's what I'm talking about. Rob, listen, on AM 790. Rob, over in Virginia. Hey, sir. Hey, hey sir. How you doing? Good. Um, what you talked about with them being incompetent, I agree with, and I'll tell you why. Uh, I've, I listened to AM 790, and this morning they're talking about, once again, they want to hold a protest down on uh, in Atlantic. It's down at Virginia Beach, and they, they plan on, stated, they plan on shutting down traffic in the loop again. Uh, now, they have a website, and they're announcing ahead of time a plan. It's not organic, and it didn't just happen. In Virginia, as far as I know, if you want to protest, you have to get a permit and permission to do it. I think when Ralph Northam... I'm not saying he's targeting churches, but when he when he when he takes on churches and bars and gyms and he says you will come. Yeah, he sold his soul. Unfortunately, against the right, he sold his soul to keep that job. New from the Fox News Podcasts Network. My name is Kennedy, and welcome to my podcast, which will I humbly say, single-handedly save the world. You're welcome. It's Kennedy saves the world. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. Live from the Fox News Radio Studios in New York City, fresh off the set of Fox and Friends, it's America's receptive voice, Brian Kilmeade. Hi, everybody. I'm Brian Kilmeade. Coming up this hour, we're going to be joined by the great Carl Rove and... We'll have a special guest, and that special guest at the bottom of the hour will be Marsha Blackburn and her daughter, Mary Morgan, talking about something very special, and that is 100 years since we let women vote. Hard to believe it took that long. Actually, I have a special on Fox Nation about it, but let's get to the big three. Now with the stories you need to know, it's Brian's Big Three. Number three. We have other cities that are out of control. They're like war zones. And if the city isn't going to straighten it out of local politicians, or we're not going to put up with that. 
President of the United States, law and order. A new low as an incompetent liberal mayors from Chicago to Portland to New York, sideline cops, welcome chaos. We're at the breaking point and the president said he's prepared to take uninvited action. Should he? Number two. One of the biggest predictors and one of the best ways to get out of poverty is early education. It's not college. It's elementary school. It's middle school where you learn about yourself, where you learn all of the basics. COVID-19 is not going anywhere. As many cities decide to keep their schools closed and hamstring businesses, does anyone have proof that any of this would help suppress the virus? It didn't the first time. To me, it only guarantees it'll crush business again and academic achievement again. Number one. Remember, Bill Stepien was at the White House and he was moved over to the campaign just a couple of months ago. He will become the Trump campaign manager and Brad is going to be handling all the digital work that he was known for and famous for in 2016. And he'll remain a senior advisor on the campaign. Uh, Dana Prino yesterday uh, with me on Tucker. The president makes a change at the top as he finds himself trailing in major poll after major poll. However, he might just have a secret weapon, and that's the secret voter that doesn't want to admit they're voting for him. That came out in a new poll. Plus, he just picked up a major endorsement from a police union that used to be buddies with Biden. So let's bring in Carl Rove. Carl, welcome back. Uh, good to be here. Incidentally, apropos of your guest at the bottom of the hour, I got a trivia question for you. What was the first territory or state to allow women to vote? I know this. Ugh. Five, four, three. Was it two, Oregon? One. Territory of Wyoming in 1869, followed by the territory of Utah in 1870, the territory of Washington State in 1883. See a little pattern going here? Territory of Montana in 1887. Then when Wyoming became a state, it was the first state to allow women to vote, followed by Colorado three years later in 1893. Then Utah in 1896, when it joined the Union, Idaho in 1896. 1910 in Washington State, California in 1911, Arizona in 1912, Kansas in 1912, Oregon in 1912, Montana in 1914, Nevada in 1914, and finally an eastern sophisticated state, New York in 1917. But look at all those western states which recognize the power of prairie women. Yeah, it's just amazing. I mean, the whole journey of African-Americans were trying to vote, blacks are trying to vote at the same time women are trying to get to vote. And the women basically said, all right, you guys go first. And then they had to wait another 30, 40 years to be able to do it. It's hard to believe that men would come home back then and hear it and not hear it from their wives to say, hey, wait a second. Why can't I vote? I'm running the whole house anyway. Yeah, (laughs) exactly. All right. So, Carl, yesterday I thought about you, and I'm so glad you were booked today. When Brad Parscale, uh, it was announced that he's stepping back to focus on digital, and Bill Stepien uh, comes up. He worked in 2008 for the Bush campaign, they say. Was it 2004, rather? Uh, He worked for uh, Governor Christie uh, twice, got him elected uh, twice. Uh, He also worked for John McCain. Is this a good move? Well, uh, all things being equal, you prefer not to have a change in the team 111 days before the election because you've seen the headlines this morning. Every Washington Post, New York Times, you know, fancy reporter has said, well, change in leadership and a sign of a failing campaign. So that's not the headline you want. But uh, I got to tell you, Stepien's an able guy. And I thought Parscale handled the change with an enormous amount of humility and courage and demonstrated thereby his loyalty to uh, to, the, to the president, which is the guy he's personally committed to. And I, I thought it was a rather classy uh, change. I, I, I liked what he had to say. What's the first thing you would do if, if it was you that was put there? 
Well, you got to look at where they are, and where they are is behind. And you cannot make you cannot make progress unless you recognize where you are. So, uh, step in has got to take a look at their operating assumptions. What 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 was their battle plan, and what adjustments are necessary to be made? And he's got to get the president to buy off on it. But uh, look, the president's not had a good you know two months, and uh, they've got to do something to reset it. Um, you know, the, his speech at Mount Rushmore on the 3rd of July was an attempt to reset it. But when you make a change in a campaign like this, you now, in order to appease the media gods and to convince voters that you're actually getting on the right track, you got to do something different. Whether, whether, whether it was something you were already planning to do or not, you got to say, we're doing something different. And, and that will cause the press to give you a little bit of period of time in which you can prove that you're making progress. See, I, I think you're thinking too traditional. They expect change with Trump. I mean, between his administration and last time, they were almost, I mean, it's almost been too steady. Brad's had the job for two years. So yeah. have, having said Longer that. Longer than everybody else combined. Yeah. Right, I know. So having said that, no one was able to pull off last time, and he has demonstrated the discipline from September to November last time, Access Hollywood tape, which was not his doing. Aside, having said that, find out why you're running, but is it first and foremost the virus? Well, it's the handling of the virus. The virus, uh, you know, nobody's going to hold the president responsible for the virus. It's the handling of the virus. And his numbers have been going down during that process. Uh, I think it was perhaps because those news conferences, which were a very good idea, uh, they became too freewheeling and too much the president. The president would have been better off coming out and saying, here's the message for the day. And now I'm turning it over to the science experts. But instead, we had, you know, the, the moment about bleach and blah, blah, and blah, blah. And all of that, I think, tended to erode uh, confidence in him because it was so freewheeling. But look, there's time to turn it around, but you have to have a plan to turn it around. And remember, the key moment coming is Thursday, the third week of, of uh, August, when the president gives his acceptance speech. Because last time around, 34 million people watched Hillary Clinton's acceptance speech, 35 million watched his acceptance speech, that was the largest number of people paying attention to the campaign on any given day up till the debates in late September and in October. And that's the moment at which traditionally a candidate has to say, you know, vote for me because here's what I want to do and here's how that contrasts with my opponent. Now, the president's got to, to, a chance to say, here, let me remind you what I've done, but that's got to be a small amount of his speech, powerfully written, but, but, but the, the smallest amount. The, the bigger, bigger amount is, well, here's what I intend to do, because people want to hear he's got a second act in him, and then he's got to lay out a contrast between what he, both what he has done and what he wants to do with what Joe Biden would do to the country. And that's the way you go back and look at uh, Donald, uh, excuse me, uh, Barack Obama's speech in 2012. Uh, you look at George W. Bush's acceptance speech in 2004, Bill Clinton's in 1996. That's where he went on for hours talking about building a bridge to the 21st century. But that's where they, they want to hear you got a second act in you. And what you've got to offer me is you've described it uh, and how it's going to be better for me compared to what my what, what, what the opposition is offering up. So, you know, you, you talk about the president, you talk in your column today about how the American people will take bad news. It's, if it's in the context of realism and you give, you're giving the American people a strategy to get out of it. At this right. point, six months into a pandemic, do we have a strategy to get out of it? Well, look, I think I think we do, which is we, we have to mask up, socially distance, uh, avoid crowds as much as we can, stay at home if we're able to, 
but act around our, 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 our neighbors, our friends, our co-workers in a way that minimizes the chance of the spread of the disease. And if we do that, uh, there's good news available to us. You know, look, the last couple of weeks have been uh, horrific in, in many states. But take there, there's, a, there's an interesting map that the, that the people at Axios put out each and every day. And I noticed that today, for example, in, their, in, their, um, in Mike Allen's column, they have a map. And guess what? I mean, there are a lot fewer states that are dark brown, meaning states that are seeing, seeing intense increases in cases. And there are a lot more states that are uh, steady or declining or whose rate of increase has dropped in the last in the last week or two. And the other thing that's interesting is there's a newsletter called The Dispatch, and they have a very interesting chart that keeps track of the cumulative cases and the cumulative day, deaths, and then the running uh, cases and the running deaths on a seven-day uh, average. So it sort of minimizes jerk, jerking up and jerking down. And the interesting thing to me is, is that that we are relatively flat on 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 deaths. We're growing on cases, and we have been for a number of weeks. But it's, we're relative, we're flat on deaths, and they're not spiking like the number of cases are, which is reflective of better treatment, better therapeutics, and probably that we're getting a lot more infections. The average age of the infection of those that are affected has dropped dramatically. So. Yeah, there's a way to get out of this, but but you know we can't wave a magic wand. There'll be a vaccine at some point, but until that point, we've got to we've got to all be responsible and realize while we're healthy, uh, you know we can help keep other people healthy by wearing masks, socially distancing, and and being responsible in our personal behavior. You got to look at your candidate. Um, one thing about President Bush that you probably recognize, Doroli, cares about people, 41 and 43, but, and one-on-one, uh, charming, and his, the empathy just came natural. With President Trump, he's got a different skill set. Obviously, he's great at being tough, but can he stay within his personality and show empathy, sympathy, and let the seniors know, even though I know you're the target and I can't really help you that much, I care. And Ari well, Fleischer he, recommended that last night, but you know the yeah. president. Can he do this? Yeah, well, look, A, he's got to. And B, think about this. A week or so ago, maybe it was just over a week, he met with families of victims of police brutality. And what was amazing to me was they came out and they, they were remarking on how sensitive and empathetic he'd been in that private meeting. Now, look, I know there's a difference between sitting in a room and t- listening to people pour out their hearts about grief and horror and anger about the loss of a loved one and being empathetic and doing it in a public setting. But he's got to find a way to do that. And, uh, and, and you're right. It, 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 he needs to do it aimed at seniors. Now, but at, the government's actually doing a lot. Look at the CDC guidelines. Look at what the White House has been saying. Look at what they've been doing to get PPE into these nursing homes and so forth. I mean, he can go out there and say, look, I want to protect the most vulnerable among us, those with compromised immune systems and, and the elderly, and particularly those in assisted living and, and, uh, and, and nursing homes. And here's what we're doing to do that. And if he were to do that, and then maybe go on the road, go, 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 to, a, go to a senior living facility. So he's on one side of the, of the glass wall and somebody's on the other. They'd be thrilled to see him, and, he could, and it would give him another chance to say, here's what we need to do as a society to protect our grandmothers and our grandfathers and and uh, and the vulnerable in these facilities, and that's to do the following. And so, uh, somebody inside the White House needs to be thinking about how he ought to play in this. He can't avoid coronavirus, 
They, they stopped the daily briefings. And my sense is they should keep regular briefings going, but he's got to find a way to show what I'm sure he shares, which is, is an empathy for those who are most vulnerable among us. And if not, you know it's bigger than the party, and you know if things don't turn around, it, I mean, it's bigger than the president. The whole party could get pulverized. Yeah. Well, when, the, when you know we we're, we live in a highly polarized political environment, and uh, the uh, you know po- uh, candidates, you know, back back in the seventies and eighties, you would have candidates who would whose whose no, presidential nominee would lose their state, and they would win reelection handily. That, that doesn't happen a lot anymore. People have a limited ability to run ahead of the head of their ticket. So, yeah, the president needs to run well in North Carolina and Iowa and Montana and Colorado and Arizona, because uh, there's only so far that, a, you know, Susan Collins or a Cory Gardner or Martha McSally could run ahead of him. And, um, you know, yeah, it's, it's important that it, it, he's going to affect everybody up and down the ticket. A couple other things. Does he have an ability that law enforcement union that came there, I think, could leave clues to getting other unions. Kim Strassel indicated that. That law enforcement union that came aboard, how significant is that? I think it's significant because it, it shows that, that, that a, a union that's traditionally been very friendly to Democrats and has a, had a longstanding relationship with Biden is upset by his language. And, I mean, look— uh, I'm, I'm, tr- I'm trying to be fair to Biden in, in this comment when he said, absolutely, you know, uh, you know, the, the, the moderator in a, in a in an interview said you know, Biden is talking about uh, surplus military equipment for police and saying they don't need that. You have an armed Humvee show up in a neighborhood. It makes them look like the military. It makes them look like the enemy. Well, that's tone deaf. We've seen riots on our screens where we would want our police to be in armed up Humvees where we want them to have, you know, surplus military equipment that would allow them to get in and get out of situations safely. But we'd like them to have, you know, vests that, that protect them against uh, shots. Uh, but, okay, fine. That's what he believes. Great. Let us judge him on it. Then the moderator says, but don't you think we ought to uh, take those funds and redirect them? To me, the key word is but. He's basically saying, okay, I heard you on the surplus military equipment, but don't you think we ought to defund the police? But Biden's not adroit enough to figure that out. So he says, absolutely, yes. But I think you read the rest of his comment, and he's clearly, it looks like he's talking about military equipment. Now, since then, he's come out and definitively said, I don't want to defund the police. But, you know, I bet the police said, wait a minute, why are you beating up on us for taking surplus military equipment? Because there are occasions where we need those for our SWAT teams and for, you know, do you think really the guys are going to roll up in Ubers for uh, outside Seattle chop zone and say, yeah, we're here to get the 19 year old shotgun uh, uh, gun for them? You know, no. By the way, Governor they, Hogan they, said the same thing. Governor Hogan said he had to call in those Humvees in Baltimore and he wasn't exactly the yeah. biggest Trump fan. Um, yeah. You might have heard. Hey, Carl, thanks. You column's great. Uh, your insight's uh, better. And I look forward to talking to you next week. Well, well, you're, see if you're, we you're just... dissing my column. You're dissing my column. It's better verbally rather than written. Come on, man. You've hurt my feelings. Wow. Is he, you know, Allison, you're right. He is very sensitive. It's not the same tough as nails, <laughs> Carl Rove. All right. Thanks, Carl. Talk to you soon. Thank you, pal. Thank you. All the best. You got it. Back in a moment. Don't go anywhere. Brian Kilmeade will be right back. 
Fox Nation presents podcasts, Women of the Bible Speak. I'm Shannon Bream, host of Fox News at Night and author of the new book, Women of the Bible Speak, the wisdom of 16 women and their lessons for today. Subscribe now on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, foxnewspodcast.com, or wherever you download your podcasts. A talk show that's real. This is the Brian Kilmeade Show. <laughs> uh, Todd, listening, uh, listening in New Hampshire. Hey, Todd. Hey, Brian. Thanks for taking the call, bud. No problem. What's on your mind? Hey, hey, on on the uh, defund the policing. I actually work for a police department now, and cutting funds, all that stuff. It's it's. It's crazy to hear him say we're going to use mediators, social workers, this and that for all this, you know, after the funds are cut and everything. Because the most ironic part of that whole thing is when social workers, even all the way to parole officers, when they need someone to go out with them, the first people they call are the police. And that's for simple things like going into houses with a temper tantrum 10-year-old or a parent that's, you know, they're trying to pull out of a house or Anything domestic with domestic abuse, any disturbance. But, but Todd, you know what they're doing? You know what they're doing in Seattle? They're pulling nine one one operators out of the police force. So there's no they're no longer synced up. That's part of the reason they said they were gonna cut the budget. Because they're not worthy of controlling their own nine one one. Ridiculous. That, I know that I mean listen, if you're a clear thinking business person, don't go to Seattle, don't go to Portland, certainly don't go to Chicago and run for your life in New York. There's so many other places and cities that have better life. Living the Bream is a podcast hosted by Fox News Channel's Shannon Bream, sharing inspirational stories, personal anecdotes, and an insider's perspective on actions and rulings from the high court. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. America's listening to Fox News. A radio show like no other. It's Brian Kilmeade. 72 women came to this location, this prison. You see Lucy Burns' name. She's charged with unlawful assembly. Some of the women were charged with obstructing traffic. Lucy Burns was sentenced first to 60 days. She protested after that 60 days and then came back here for six months. So they were really trying to squelch their voices on right. the issue of suffrage. And when you talk about their stays, brutal, right? Very brutal. That's right. Communication. They weren't given paper. They weren't allowed to write letters, maybe one a month. They weren't receiving mail. They had some pretty brutal conditions. And I also heard that uh, there was someone to go on a hunger strike. That's right. So Lucy Burns went on a hunger strike and that caused a lot of issues because they certainly didn't want one of the women to die on them because of that hunger strike. They would lose the media. They would lose the press. They would lose sentiment. And that was Jane Hampton Cook, who wrote a book about women's suffrage, and we're able to do a feature on Fox Nation about it, which is the subject of my two next guests. Um, it is uh, Mary Morgan Blackburn Ketchell, who has penned a historical fiction for kids, bringing to life the excitement of women's right to vote and the journey they went through. Joined by her mom and esteemed senator from Tennessee, Senator Marsha Blackburn. Senator, welcome back. Well, thank you. It is so good to be with you, and what an incredible story it is to tell. I I think that all women should know this story. And I guess, Mary, that's why you did it, right? Exactly. I got to go through life watching my mother 
right through the glass ceiling again and again. And as we swore her into the United States Senate, I got to watch as a group of people gathered around, listen to the story being told of the day that the vote was won and the reactions on their faces. And many of them hearing the story for the first time, it led me to think of this as an opportunity for a children's book to tell the story and to share it with all American children. Yeah, it's amazing, too. The state of Tennessee was the last... Uh, of the necessary 36 states to ratify the 19th Amendment. You know, it's still, you got to sober people up until I really took this topic for the Fox Nation series. It didn't really sink in that it took this long for women to have the right they should have been born with. That's right. It was a 72-year effort, and it culminated August 18th, 1920, in downtown Nashville, Tennessee. And the irony is it was a tie vote, 48-48. And... A young state legislator had just received a letter from his suffragist mother, literally in the nick of time, ran in and changed his vote, and history was made. And who was that? That was Harry T. That was Representative Harry Byrne, and he is out of East Tennessee, and uh, he was there in Nyota. Tennessee. It's kind of between Chattanooga and Knoxville. And his relatives still live in that area. And it is amazing to talk to them, Brian, because they talk about how he was committed to doing the right thing and the impact of his mom, who was called Miss Feb. And she wrote that letter and asked him to be a good boy and help Miss Cat, Carrie Chapman Cat put the rat in ratification to take off that red rose, which is what the anti-suffragists were wearing, and put on the yellow rose, which was the rose that the suffragists were wearing. So that he did. He minded his mother, and history (laughs) was made, and women got the right to vote. Mary, are you surprised, and Martha, uh, uh, Marsha, are you surprised, too, that they went to prison for the right to vote. I, I went to the house in which they congregated, plotted, and planned in order to lobby uh, Woodrow Wilson and all past presidents and lawmakers for this right. Were you surprised they went to prison where they had to do a hunger strike to get attention and they were force-fed? Mary, you first. Isn't it an amazing story of perseverance? I just think it is incredible to consider that the women that started this fight did not even live to see it finished. And those that were imprisoned and those that just would not give up. I think that to me is why it's important for children to hear this story because what an inspiration to just never give up when you create a goal and you get your group together and you lobby for an effort or you determine that you are going to succeed, just don't give up. And Senator, think about this. Uh, You know, when we, we had slaves to start as a country, the original sin, We have a civil war to forget that, uh, to work through that. Uh, For a while, African-Americans couldn't play sports at a professional level together. We were integrated buses. We did all that, did schools. And then we have women couldn't vote till 1919. We, We fixed that. Does that mean everything that happened during those times of imperfection, times in which we're still living now, it could always be better? Does that mean all that stuff didn't matter, that we were an evil country back then? 
What it means, Brian, is that we have people in the country that want to make certain that the promises of our founding documents, our declaration, and our Constitution, that we are equal and it applies to all equally, that we are a nation of laws, that we abide by the rule of law, and that we continue to strive to make that the opportunity for all Americans. One of the goals in this little children's book is to encourage young girls and children to dream those big dreams and to know if they stick with it, if they stay committed, that they're going to be able to make those dreams come true. And when you look at this and think about 72 years and the amount of time that it took, and then in 1920, how these women who, as you said, they had been put in jail, they had been on a hunger strike, they were called the Iron Jawed Angels, they came to Nashville, Tennessee, and were at the Hermitage Hotel, and then climbed those 72 steps to our state capitol to work. They were so persistent, they were gracious, They were kind, but they were committed, and they were persistent. It is a wonderful lesson for each of us today. Right. And Mary, uh, do you find that there's not enough for young readers when it comes to American history? I do. I have two elementary school-aged boys, and I have actually found that we can find great books for them to read. And many of the historical fiction writers write for boys, and they write the boys into the story. So for me, it was time for a little girl, a little girl character to be created that could help young girl readers connect to these trailblazing women in history and to get that message of courage and to really feel the connection and feel like they are part of the story. And so the character um, is at the exhibit at the museum, and she is so enthralled. She's about a second-grade girl that her imagination goes wild, and she finds herself in the, with a bird's-eye view the day that the vote was won. So she sees it all play out. She comes away with a connection to the character, to the suffragists, and she is amazed that it wasn't that long ago, and she can't imagine a world where her mom, her teacher, and the women that she knows in her life didn't have the right to vote. So it's a great takeaway for a young girl. Oh, fantastic. Mary Morgan Blackburn Ketchell, thanks so much. Congratulations on the book. How do we get it? Thank you. Yes, Barnes & Noble. Books a million, Amazon.com. It's amazing how many more books you can sell when you can go actually into the bookstore. And that's great. Now, <laughs> in most states, you, you can. Uh, thanks so much. And Senator Blackburn, I have a, an exit question for you. Are you glad the sure. president made a change at the top of his campaign with Brad Parscal, who steps back? I think that the president is given and not hesitant to be sure he has the right person in the right position. And campaigns shift, the dynamics of campaigns shift, and I am sure that this team working together decided it was time to make a shift. So Donald Trump is going to win. We're going to be working hard on it. All right. uh, Go get him, Senator. Nice meeting you, Mary. Great to talk to you. Congratulations on the book. 
Thank you. All right. Thank well, you, Brian. You got it. Let's uh, back to wrap up this hour. one 866 I'm actually motivated now. I'm going to give away three of my books when we come back. The one of your choice, including two young readers' books. One's on Jefferson Pirates and one's on George Washington Spies. Don't move. Brian Kilmeade Show. Educating. Entertaining. Enlightening. You're with Brian Kilmeade. The more you listen, the more you'll know. It's Brian Kilmeade. And as a result of the outcome of today's endorsement process, we proudly endorse President Trump. President Trump addressed our board on Monday. Uh, The same opportunity was given to Vice President Biden. And as to why the actual participation did not occur, I would defer you to the vice president and or the leadership of his campaign. Yeah, and he didn't. He didn't show. And guess what? Donald Trump did. And he's been showing up for law enforcement from day one. And I actually believe even Barack Obama would admit that. Mick McHale goes, turns around as president of the National Association of Police Organizations, 250,000, quarter million uh, strong. Think about their families and the retired officers. Uh, the president's got a chance to make some real inroads on law enforcement, especially if he follows through what evidently he's going to announce shortly, and that is using federal officers in the city that have spiraled out of control that was uh, done yesterday and you believe others he could get him other union votes Uh, especially he's got the farmers who he subsidized because China's targeted them and now you have uh, and now they have the USMCA that's helping pull manufacturing back to this country we did have 1.3 million people apply for unemployment that is down each and every week but man is that too high we used to think 200,000 was too high Brian, listen, WLAD, Monroe, Connecticut. Brian. Hey, Brian, what's up? Hey, I just wanted to make a quick note. I, I've been in the union my whole life, and I agree with the cops going with uh, Trump because we've had a lot of, uh, like Malloy, you know, before us. He never backed us. He gave up on us. And if we go with Biden, we're going to lose the work in America. No, which we've no seen question. Already. You know what I mean? And there's 90% of the jobs on our main streets that are all illegals. They're, they're, you know, non-union jobs. So we got to keep America here. Trump's not out to bust the unions 100 percent like it was with Reagan. You know what I mean? So if we get those jobs back, it's going to be great. And I just wanted to make one more note. We got to back the cops because my next town over, Sandy Hook. And what's going to happen if if that, God forbid, happens again? Are we going to send out the social workers? Yes. I don't think so. They are. And and they're pulling cops out of schools, too. Uh, Yeah. and, and that's one thing I wanted to say on the schools. I was trying to get on before. I just want to say real quick. These protesters, you watch like Waters, and they question these kids that are protesting. They don't have a clue what they're even doing. And these are the parents that are going to homeschool their kids. Our kids got to get back to school. Absolutely. Hold on, uh, Brian. I'll get you a book. The new one is Sam Houston, the Alamo Avengers, now out on paperback. But you'll have your choice, Allison. You'll grab Brian. Uh, let's go to Matt. Listen, 92.3 uh, uh, WNC. Yes, sir. Brian, I like your show. Great. What's on your mind? Um, it was about all that craziness I heard on your show earlier about that black people are shooting black people. I mean, that's it's that's nothing to do with Black Lives Matter. Then why would they, like you said on your show, why are they killing each other? 
Absolutely. And you're seeing uh, you're seeing the different black leaders saying that. And then you see the family say, what did my son do? He's one years old. Why did he deserve a bullet in the chest? And you can't blame a, 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 an angry officer for that. My point, Brian, the one, the grandmother yesterday, yep. I believe it was the show. It might have been another show. might have been Chris Plank or whatever his name is in the afternoon. But she said, what are you people doing? It's her own people. Killed a one-year-old. Nuts. And and the thing is, Black Lives Matter, I, I like the message. I, the, I'm on the fence with the organization. Why they don't choose to talk about other things. And, in fact, we have a cut from Marcus Wiley that really outlines – how I feel about it, and here's a here's a African American outstanding uh, football player turned outstanding broadcaster, and here's what he said last week. There's a problem with when you start to go down this road of the freedom of expression, freedom of speech. How much social space is allowed for those who don't support in that same space? We know what identity politics does. It divides and it polarizes. I don't know how many people really look into the mission statement of Black Lives Matter. Being a father and a husband, that's my mission in life right now. How do I reconcile that with this mission statement that says, quote, we dismantle the patriarchal practice. We disrupt the Western prescribed nuclear family structure requirement. I respect what you're protesting for, but will you respect others who don't support that same protest? Uh, That's Marcellus Wiley. So that's what he's saying. He goes, I've been a black man since 1974. This group started in 2013. Please don't tell me my mission. Joe, listening online. In, and by the way, we'll get Matt a book. Um, uh, let's go to Joe, listening online in Indiana. Hey, Joe. Hi, Brian. Love your history shows on Fox Nation. My husband and I are just caught up in your your passion is infectious. And my thought? Is? Okay. Uh, There are definitely a lot of silent voters out there, people that are like me. I work at a small college, and I can't say a thing. In fact, I just closed my door so I could talk on the phone, and and it's a real thing. Even with friends, we sort of gauge where they're at. Are they... Are they left? Are they right? You know, we don't know what people are these days, but it's crazy. And I, I do not share my thoughts. Somebody calls so, me on the phone and, and asks and, me. And what you're referring to, you're referring to, of course, is this poll that was out that's asked people, do you believe yep. there's silent support for President Trump? And it's almost 50 percent if you combine somewhat or absolutely. And for Joe Biden, 5 percent. Other people said this silent report uh, support for uh, Biden because nobody would be embarrassed to say they're voting for Biden, even though he's a terrible candidate. That was probably the sixth or seventh best in the primary, but he was the only one acceptable because without Biden, they'd be stuck with Bernie and they would have lost. Thanks so much, Joe. Randy, listen, WLKF Lakeland. Hey, Randy. Hey, Brian. Uh, it's good to meet you there in Lakeland. Here. Yeah. Uh, couple of months ago. That was a great event. Yes, last year. Yeah, wonderful. I just wanted to ask you if you think there is any chance George W. Bush will at least come out and endorse Donald Trump. Not a chance. Not a chance. Why not? Not a chance. Uh, He's going to stay out of it, and I think that's the best he can do. He's bitter. Uh, He does not like the way President Trump uh, said he lied his way in Iraq, lied about uh, WMDs. That is 100 percent not true. Uh, The the war is the worst war in our history. George W. Bush doesn't feel that way. Uh, Even though they bury the hatchet, 
for Bush 41's funeral? There's no way. I give Bush 43 credit for not doing what Mitt Romney's doing. And Mitt Romney's acting like a, a spoiled child. He has been since he lost. His speeches leading up to it, the way he caved to be Secretary of State and then asked President Trump for his endorsement and then turned on him again. Uh, 43 just wants to be out of it. And listen, I know for sure that he was not happy with Barack Obama, the way Barack Obama was putting him, putting him and his administration down for six of his eight years. But he still kept his mouth shut. Yeah, yeah. I'm sad about that because I would think he would put the country before his own personal feelings. Yeah, I think he liked Biden. I don't think he likes Trump. Thanks so much for listening. Listen, watch me on Tucker tonight on at 8 o'clock. Hope to see you there. Listen to the Brian Kilmeade Show. I'll tell you, and I'll tease what's coming up on Friday's show. That's the way it works. You watch me at 8. I'll be with you at 9. From the Fox News Podcasts Network. Hey there, it's me, Kennedy. Make sure to check out my podcast, Kennedy Saves the World. It is five days a week, every week. Download and listen at foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you listen to your favorite podcast. Listen to the show ad-free on Fox News Podcast Plus, on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music with your Prime membership, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.